0: And so, Lord, we ask now that you would bless this time. God, we ask that you would bless our hearts and help us to see good news for weary sinners like us in Christ. Lord, we think of the church at Martinsburg this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for the incredible work that you've done there in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Father, we ask and pray that you would continue to do a good work there. Uh, The good work that's been done there has led to a good work that is being done presently now. God, we thank you for the work that uh, church at Martinsburg has done to help plant Hagerstown Church, and God, we ask and pray that as Pastor Josh preaches there, uh, Lord, that you would bless the reading of the word there, and that you would bless the saints uh, as they worship together. And so, Father, we pray that you bless this time now as we open your scriptures, and we ask that you would make much of yourself and strengthen us, Lord, with good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Good morning and welcome, and it is uh, good to be with you all today. Uh, My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm very happy to be here with you this morning. Uh, However, I am sad to say goodbye to some of you because uh, my favorite group, no offense, parents, but my favorite group is to be dismissed now. So friends, Hubtown Kids will be dismissed. Blue Station, ages three to five, you want to go towards Mr. Brett's direction, uh, and Gray Station, ages 6th to 5th grade, you want to follow uh, Mr. Isaac that way. He's going in that same direction. So our kids this morning in Hubtown Kids, they are going to be meditating upon and thinking about a particular subject that is immensely relevant to our time together this morning, which is this attribute that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is in control of the whole universe. He is king over everyone and everything. That may be the one thing that you get out of our time together this morning, but that is a very good lesson to meditate upon, not just for our kids, but uh, all of us as a whole. Friends, if you have spent any time studying American history, uh, you will know that uh, one of the greatest times of peace and prosperity came in one of the times of the greatest darkness. Uh, It was the conclusion of the Great War, World War II. Uh, The conclusion of World War II led to uh, significant innovation and uh, technological advancement, social advancement, uh, and also a deep anxiety over the American land. Uh, I'll just highlight a couple of things for you. Uh, This is not a history lesson, but hopefully you will find this informative and illuminating. But there was a deep anxiety after the conclusion of World War II over post-war economy. What would the American economic landscape look like now that the war was over? If you remember American history, you'll know that during the late 20s to uh, the mid 30s, uh, we lived through, not we, but maybe some of our parents and grandparents, lived through the Great Depression. It was an incredible uh, economic situation where many people were unemployed. Uh, Inflation was ridiculously high beyond what we experience even today, but, World War II allowed for millions of Americans to not only get back into work in the military setting, uh, but also in various other social programs that helped to advance uh, American services all around the country, right? But now that millions of soldiers were coming back home, what would happen to all these jobs that were created because now all these military veterans would require work as well? There was significant economic anxiety after World War II. But not only was there economic anxiety, there was also significant anxiety over geopolitical tensions with the Soviet Union, right? Because shortly after America uh, detonated the, uh, the first and the second nuclear bomb, just so happened that the Soviet Union had an identical bomb explode just a couple of years later. And and not only was there this uh, great threat over uh, uh, nuclear weapons, but the expanse and the reach of Soviet communism was spreading around the world. So there was significant geopolitical tension across America. This led to the uh, expansion of the space race. Some of you might remember Sputnik. Some of you might remember JFK's words. But it also led to the expansion of the nuclear arms race. There was also the anxiety over the threat of world-consuming nuclear war. Uh, Maybe some of you have watched the, the new movie about J. Robert Oppenheimer and how in Oppenheimer's work, there was this great anxiety that if nuclear fission was possible, that the entire atmosphere of the planet would catch on fire and kill everyone in the world. This was a genuine anxiety that Americans faced And a a very clear example of that were nuclear bomb drills in schools. Uh, Some of you may be old enough to remember, maybe your parents or grandparents could remember children in schools would hear the sirens go off and then they'd hide behind their desk because a cheap school desk would prevent nuclear fallout from harming them. But I say all these things to show you that America was living through a significant time of anxiety. But many of us on a day-to-day basis, these are not the same types of anxieties that we experience. We're probably not thinking about geopolitical tensions or the threat of nuclear war, rather We find ourselves not consuming ourselves building bunkers and and filling it with foods that might be a little questionable but promised to last you 25 years. We're probably not thinking about those types of things. We're probably thinking about things like how in the world are we going to pay for this kitchen remodel? How are we going to make our next mortgage payment? Great. Now the car needs to be fixed, and it just so happens that there's not enough wiggle room in the budget to get the brakes replaced. Uh, you might want to see Brian Kelvington if you need your brakes replaced. You're probably thinking about, moms, how am I going to get the kids to practice on time and uh, get them to bed on a, in, a, in a decent hour? Uh, You might be thinking about how you're gonna schedule that play date in the middle of an already busy week, and on and on and on and on, the list grows. We may not be living in Cold War America anymore, but we all face the cruel monster of anxiety in some way, shape, or form. So I am going to take time this morning not assuming if you face anxiety, I'm going to assume you do. Because that appears to be Jesus' disposition and understanding in Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 12, Matthew chapter 10. That seems to be Paul's disposition in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to spend some time looking through some various uh, passages of scripture. But friends, day in and day out, we face anxieties. There's always something to worry about. There's always something to worry about. What in your life makes you anxious or fearful? There might be some things that come to mind. You might be someone who does not want to admit you become anxious or fearful because that's not strong, right? There there, there seems to be this idea in uh, our uh, our cultural moment in masculinity that it is not masculine to be fearful. But you are fearful and you do have fears and you do have worries and you do have anxieties. So what in your life makes you anxious and fearful? You don't have to answer that question out loud, but I can share with you over the fact that over the last year, I, as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, faced the most intense season of anxiety and worry that I have in my entire life, before I became a Christian and after I became a Christian. This last year of anxiety and fear and worry have left scars and bruises that I do not think will heal. Day in and day out, over the last 12 months, I would ask myself and I would ask the Lord, what in the world just happened? Why is this happening? And really, the heart of that question is, why is this happening to me? Lord, are you there? What in the world are you doing? Why are you doing this? That's kind of a modern day psalm. And when I couldn't sleep at night, I would find myself tossing and turning, wondering, Lord, how in the world are these bills going to get paid? What is going to happen to us when the emergency funds run out? Why won't any of these employers call me? I have spent countless hours tweaking this resume. What else do I need to do? Why does God keep shutting all these doors? Why in the world did I get this useless bachelor's degree in religion that is not getting me anywhere in the economic market? Should I get a master's degree? But if I do, then how in the world am I going to pay for that? I definitely don't want to get into debt. If we get into debt, how are we going to pay for that additional thing? This is not the future that I thought I would have. Why did God take that one dream job opportunity away from me? We're never going to get back on track to save for our retirement. I am not in my 20s anymore. I am an old man in my early 30s. But what will others think of me? They must think I'm such a loser. My wife must be terrified. My kids don't have any clue, but wouldn't they be a little bit embarrassed that dad is a loser? I am such a failure. I am an embarrassment to my family and to my friends and to those who look to me as a leader. What will the members of the church think? The most significant question I found myself asking in the last 12 months God, where are you? I know you're there, you just don't feel close. You don't have to raise your hand, but I I do want to ask, have y'all been there? Are you there right now? Do you feel ashamed to even ask these questions? Do you feel a certain fear or tension that if you even bring to light that you are anxious or fearful that you're somehow dishonoring God, not trusting him, not being a good enough Christian? I do. And you probably do too. As uh, one of my theological and, and pastoral heroes, David Powelson, wrote, What hijackers seize the controls of your mind? What are the one, two, six, dozen things that tend to snag you? What do you tend to worry about? Maybe it's not financial. Or in addition to the financial worries, there are other worries. Do I have any real friends? Will I ever get married? If I do find the right husband or wife, will he or she be faithful to me? Am I worth marrying? Will I be able to have kids? If I have kids, how will they turn out? What about my health? Some of my friends are dying of cancer. It's painful, is that going to be for me? Some of you may think about your own particular family members who may be older or have had health issues and you wonder what's gonna happen to them. You're fearful over their health and their life. Pallison goes on and he asks another example, what if I get Alzheimer's? The thought of ending my life, not even being able to recognize the people I love, what about that? Friends, that's a genuine concern of mine. I have feared that one day I'm gonna get older and my memory's gonna slip and really what it's gonna be is this ugly disease of Alzheimer's. Pallison goes on and he continues to say, on and on and on, your health, your money, your relationships, your achievements, any of those things can hijack the controls You worry, fret, and stew. The fact is, these are all iffy. You have good reasons to worry about those things. None of them are sure. Your health could go to the dogs. The stock market could crash. There could be no jobs. The kids could turn out rotten. You could end up lonely. You could fail at something or get excluded. These are all unsure by nature. There is every reason in the world to worry about them. So let me ask you, what do you worry about? This would be a really good question to meditate on and to uh, honestly reflect on, maybe after church today, maybe when you're out at lunch. Uh, This would be a helpful conversation to have with your spouse. Honey, what do you worry about? What are you anxious about? What are the worries and anxious that you've seen me demonstrate and exhibit that maybe I'm not aware of? You might be shocked to find the answer. Uh, Not only about what you are anxious about that you maybe were not aware of, but also what your spouse is anxious about that you were not aware of. We find in ourselves our anxiety stemming from a variety of different things, right? And I don't want to minimize our anxiety. I don't want to downplay that as if it's not important, because it is. Jesus came for the whole person of you, and so Your anxiety is a part of that. He died for you, even in your anxiousness. We find ourselves sometimes finding anxiety stemming from our own difficult experiences in the past. Sometimes it stems from our unending competitive comparison. My house does not look like my neighbor's house, and so I'm going to spend countless hours trying to work to make sure that the neighbors are pleased with what they see. But what they can't see is how anxious I am about getting my house to look like the Joneses. Competitive comparison fuels our anxieties. Sometimes our anxiety slams into our face because for the last 20 minutes, we've been busily assuming how the future will play out. We play in our minds what we assume the future is going to look like, and we think, well, I have all of the answers, and I have all of the pieces of data I need, so this is the only way that the future is going to play. Friends, I'm going to burst your bubble just for a second and say, that is extremely arrogant. Assuming we know everything about the future demonstrates we are not trusting in the Lord who alone knows the future, we are saying, I know how it's going to go. Friends, you probably don't even know what you're going to have for dinner tonight. I know I don't. So if I don't know what's gonna happen five minutes from now, how can I possibly accurately assume I'm going to know what's gonna have happen 20 minutes from now or 20 years from now? I can't. Other times our anxiety turns its ugly head to catch us off guard because we have been engaged in a dizzying preoccupation with anything and everything else. Friends, from television media, to social media, to all kinds of stuff on the internet, to all kinds of stuff on our phone, to all kinds of conversations that we find ourselves engaged in that might not be helpful. We find ourselves in a dizzying preoccupation with anything and everything else. We want to tend to all these other troubles, and we want to just see that our present troubles that, fa- that we're facing right now will just go away for a minute. But because we're so preoccupied with everything else and what that church is doing over there and what that body is doing over there, we don't want to actually engage with the troubles that are there for us presently right now. And so what do we do? It ultimately ends up exacerbating and amplifying and uh, like compound interest, our anxieties compound. And yet, the Lord Jesus said to his listeners, do not be anxious those are the Lord God's words to you today. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 12, he says unequivocally, Do not be anxious. So I'm going to repeat Jesus' words one more time because you might forget my words this morning, but I pray you will not forget the Lord Jesus' words. He has said to you, Church, Do not be anxious. The Apostle Paul said, in no uncertain terms, do not be anxious about anything. Those are four instances of uh, uh, exhortations we've received to not be anxious. Friends, when you survey the uh, Old Testament and the New, there are approximately 365 instances recorded of God's exhortation to his people, do not fear or fear not. Friends, 365. I think in providential irony, that is one exhortation to not be afraid or to not be fearful for every single day of the year. I wonder if God is sovereign. And maybe in his providential and ironic sense of humor, he has given us enough promises to satisfy us and to sustain us every single day of our lives. But these exhortations of do not fear, they are less rebukes and more encouragement. I don't know about you, but I have received uh, what folks have thought were helpful counsel, saying, "Don't worry." I don't think that's how Jesus is speaking to us, where He is rebuking us and beating us with this command of, "Do not fear, do not be anxious." Over and over and over again, God's fatherly tender care is demonstrated to us through his word. And he does not seem to run out of patience to remind his weak little flock of children to say, do not fear. I am with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. But friends, terms like anxiety, Uh, are thrown around all over the place. Uh, Our culture has an understanding of anxiety that may or may not line up with the scriptures. Many of us probably already have a preconceived idea of what it means to be anxious, what it means to have anxiety. Many of us look at it as exclusively a clinical diagnosis. Some of us will look at uh, anxiety from a purely secular standpoint where there are particular symptoms that I need to address, right? But, but what I, what I want to highlight for us this morning through the scriptures is we face giant terrors before us, and yet the Lord is near to us. Even now, even in the midst of your anxiety, the Lord is present. Uh, according to the American Psychiatric Association, this is uh, how our culture, maybe even your workplace, understands anxiety. Uh, But according to the APA, anxiety is a normal response to stress and can even be beneficial in some situations, such as uh, an increasing attention and focus on a test or work task. By contrast, anxiety disorders differ from temporary feelings of anxiousness or nervousness with more intense feelings of fear or anxiety. Friends, I just want to share with you how the APA and our culture understands anxiety. I'm not speaking as a clinician, and I'm not speaking as one who uh, has all the answers. Rather, I want to highlight for you how we live in a world that understands something that the scriptures have already spoken about in greater clarity. Now, we will find helpful resources and helpful observations from clinicians and mental health professionals. However the scriptures speak more powerfully. While secular sources speak healthfully, the scriptures speak powerfully. The Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, this is the the mega rubric, right? Like the the mega encyclopedia of uh, understanding mental health symptoms and treatments, specifically describes anxiety as excessive worry and apprehensive expectations. We can probably all understand and relate to that and agree with it. Uh, and it goes, goes on to say that this occurs more days than not for at least six months. I don't know why they assume that it doesn't last for, or I, that it lasts for specifically at least six months, but that's how the APA understands this. And your anxiety can uh, involve a number of different events or activities, such as school or work performance, uh, particular symptoms that clinicians and mental health professionals will identify uh, with anxiety restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge, easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or your mind going blank, irritability, muscle tension, sleep disturbance, such as difficulty falling or staying asleep, or restless and unsatisfying sleep. Super helpful observations, definitely helpful. We can relate to that. But the DSM-5 goes on to explain that possible treatments for anxiety include uh, psychological therapy, medication, or maybe even a combination of both. Again, can be super helpful. Some of you may uh, be following particular guidelines provided to you by mental health professionals and psychologists and and various types of counselors, uh, uh, prescription medications, all of those things could be helpful. I'm not demonizing or vilifying any of those things. But what I do want to emphasize and highlight is that while the DSM-5 and secular psychotherapy and other mental health professionals can provide helpful resources and observations to alleviate symptoms that's about as far as secular sources can go to alleviate symptoms but many of us in the midst of our anxiety that's all we want we just want relief right now we want the feelings of anxiousness and fear and worry to go away and we want to feel peace and relief but friends as helpful as these outside sources can be, secular psychotherapy fails to go deep enough to understand the core reality of human beings. There's two facets that secular sources are going to miss. Number one, that God is our creator. And number two, that you and I have been made in the image of God. That's huge. That's absolutely huge. You cannot understand yourself Rightly, if you do not understand the fact that you have been made by a holy creator God who sees you right now, you cannot understand yourself rightly, nor your own sufferings or anxieties, if you don't realize the fact that you have been made in the image of a relational God. We are sinners, in Christ we are saints, and until Christ returns, we are sufferers as well. Now, I want to provide for you, I believe, what is a helpful biblical understanding and definition of anxiety. Right, we're talking about everyday garden variety anxiety, the, the kinds of stuff that we face on a regular basis. I'm not talking about particular uh, uh, psychotherapeutic social disorders or anything like that, but just everyday garden variety anxiety. And I think this might be helpful. But anxiety is the result of an overwhelming concern or worry that is driven by fear. An overwhelming concern or worry that is driven by fear. This may be driven by the fear of loss, fear of danger, fear of the unknown, fear of the uncontrollable, fear of death, the list goes on. I think that uh, provides for us a big-picture understanding of anxiety, an overwhelming concern or worry that is driven by fear. Now, this sounds super negative and really down, but I do want to highlight two particular instances in the scriptures where we saw anxiety, but in a positive light, right? Uh, we do see the Lord Jesus Christ. So deeply overwhelmed and concerned with the fate that is before him, the impending death on a cross and the wrath of God that is to come that he literally stays up all night praying, dropping uh, droplets of blood on the ground. He was that deeply overwhelmed. Many of us have not gone that far, right? It's one thing to feel anxious about getting to work on time or to please an overbearing boss. And it's another thing to be so concerned with what is about to happen to you that you drop sweat of blood. That's not to minimize your experience, but maybe that'll help you to kind of reframe your perspective on what the Lord Jesus Christ has endured for you an overwhelming concern or worry that is driven by fear. The second instance I can think of is the Apostle Paul himself had an anxiety over the various churches that he planted and led and oversaw. He was anxious that they would have a- uh, abandoned the doctrine and walked away to some other false gospel. Last night, uh, I-, I think I can relate to the Apostle Paul very, very, in a very small way uh, like this. Last night, In the middle of a uh, a turbulent night of sleep, I dreamt that a member family in our church uh, did something extremely silly and foolish and sinful, and they left. And I, as a pastor, had to go find them. And what am I supposed to do? And the dream felt so real that I woke up unable to tell if I was still asleep. I was anxious in my dream. I was anxious when I woke up. I could not go back to sleep and I remained anxious for the rest of that sleepless night and early hours of the morning. I felt anxious at our 10.15 meeting in the back. Friends, if you haven't figured it out by now, I too deal with anxiety. But friends, when we understand anxiety biblically, what we see is anxiety is the result Of when we forget that God is God and He is in control. Our anxiety delusionally says, I am in control, or at least I should be. Uh, The late Tim Keller said so helpfully when we worry, we are saying, I know the way my life is supposed to go and God is not getting it right. Again, he said, anxiety is a daily statement to God saying, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. Very few of us would likely say such statements like these out loud. You might even be embarrassed to admit these thoughts out loud. And yet, our anxiety and our anxious behaviors, they speak for us. They say the thing without your lips saying the thing. In our anxiety, we practically and functionally declare, I am on my own there is no help for me. I must take matters into my own hands. Friends, in our study this morning, we are going to see that the Lord has something much better to say to you than what your anxiety says to you. In the Lord's unimaginably uh, abundant kindness, he will not let your anxieties have the last word. If you are anxious, if you are fearful, if you are someone who worries, if you are someone who frets and you stew in your worry and fear and you wonder, how in the world am I going to get through this? Dear friend, God has good news for you in your anxiety. So turn with me now to Psalm 94. Psalm 94, uh, if you want to follow along on the screens, you're also welcome to grab a a copy of the Pew Bibles there in front of you. Uh, The black hardcover ones will be on page uh, 590. For those of you who are new to reading the Bible, the, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, the smaller numbers inside the lines are the verse numbers. We're gonna be on page 590, looking at Psalm 94. Friends, the book of Psalms, And when you identify a psalm, it's not Psalms 94, just a friendly uh, Bible study tip. It's Psalm 94, right? So it's an individual psalm in the collection of the book of Psalms. That's just a little pet peeve that I hope that you will uh, bear with me. But the book of Psalms really is a collection of songs. This was the book of songs that uh, the people of Israel would use to worship God, And some of you have read through the Psalms, and you wonder, where in the world is the melody and the tune to this? I do not understand how I can sing this as a song. But you can try, and you can see uh, uh, Deacon Jeremy uh, for help. But Psalm 94 is an invitation for us to understand. Psalm 94 is an invitation for us to understand, because in this Psalm, we are invited to understand, I believe, four things. We're to understand our troubles. We're to understand our God. We're to understand our hope. And we're to understand our help. And friends, I'll just give you the main idea here from Psalm 94 before we spend time unpacking this further. But simply, the main idea here is, the Lord is near to you, so you can courageously attend to today and confidently leave tomorrow to him. The Lord is near to you, so you can courageously attend to today and confidently leave tomorrow to him. This might be the one sentence that you ought to meditate upon and reflect on all week long. That would not make you a lazy Christian. That would not make you intellectually lazy or or, or whatever or undisciplined. But this might be the one thought that the Lord Jesus would have for you to rest in and to find peace in the midst of your afflictions of anxiety. The Lord is near to you. And because he is near, because he is near to you, dear anxious one, you can courageously attend to today and confidently leave tomorrow to him. Turn with me, Psalm 94. Let's look at the first seven verses as we understand our troubles. The psalmist writes, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Friends, these brief seven verses are an invitation for you to understand our troubles. Notice how the psalmist, he cries out to God, O Lord, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Did you notice that he does not take upon himself the act of vengeance? The psalmist nowhere in these passages say, I'm going to take matters on my, in my own hands and I am going to repay those who kill the widows and those who kill the sojourners and those who kill those who have no fathers. No, 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 no. The psalmist rightly understands who God is. And in our anxiety, we wrongly assume that God has left or that God clocked out, or that God is not doing the right thing, and so we need to come up behind him and help him get back on track. No. The psalmist cries out to God, and he cries out to God, understanding the character of God. Friends, have you ever considered the fact that in the midst of your worry and fear, it is very easy to forget God's character? I mean, the first character that we're quick to forget is the fact that he is sovereign, Right? We might have preconceived ideas of what sovereignty even means, and we've got this cartoonish idea that, you know, he's some sort of puppet master when it comes to sovereignty, but friends, sovereignty of God means he is in control of everything. He's never off the clock. He is the God of vengeance. Vengeance is his, and he will repay. But notice also how the psalmist acknowledges their troubles. He says, God, look at what's happening. Look at this. God, I know you see. Here is where we are. Here is our experience. And what's even uh, perhaps more exposing is he says, God, they say you're not going to see. They say you cannot perceive. Do you feel the weight of the psalmist crying out to the Lord, the God of vengeance, acknowledging his troubles? Many of us, in the midst of our anxiety, we don't want to admit that we're anxious because we wrongly assume that if we do, God is going to be displeased with us. Or that time after time after time after time of slipping up and being anxious, God's going to be done with us. He's just going to say, You know, this relationship with you, saint, is not worth me keeping. I've got a bigger universe to carry and to care for than your small little universe where you just will not trust me. I'm done. Friends, you may have had um, a father in your life who was like that. You may have had friends in your life who have abandoned you and said, you know what, I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore with you. But you don't have a God like that. You don't. If you believe that, in love, I say to you, you're wrong. That's not God. That might be a God of your own imagination. That's a really bad God to hold on to, though and the god that's going to reject you and abandon his own character and his own promises that is not a god worthy of worship there's a better god available and we see him hidden in this passage the psalmist cries out to god he understands the character of god and he honestly genuinely acknowledges his troubles but not only are we invited to understand our troubles Verses 8 through 11 invites us to understand our God. Read with me. Understand, O dullest of the people. All right, y'all. So, this is great. This basically says, look, y'all. You're really, really not getting this. Understand, O dullest of the people. Dull is not referring to um, people being maybe intellectually uh, behind, but saying, your senses of understanding have become really uh, blunt. You're like that crayon that once had a sharp point, but you've just become a stub, right? You've become dull. Your spiritual senses, your intellectual senses have become dull to the character and the reality of God. He goes on, fools, when will you be wise? You just gotta stop there and pause for a second. Fools. When will you be wise? I don't recommend you saying that to your neighbors. But I do encourage you to receive this statement from the Lord. Verse 9, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Friends, what do you glean from this passage? I am dumb. That's what I kind of picked up as I was just reflecting on this. I can be really dumb and thick headed. I fail to understand the majesty and the glory of God. My senses towards God become dull in the midst of my anxieties. But this little brief passage is not about me, it's about the Lord. The psalmist wants you to consider God. If he is the creator, won't he be able to see what is happening? If he created everything, didn't he have to be able to see what he was creating? You see him seeing in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 because he sees what he created and he says, that's good. If he's the governor of the universe, won't he be able to judge rightly? Uh, Genesis 18:25 may be a very helpful passage for you to consider this morning: "Will the judge of all the earth not judge justly?" Many of us are in the midst of wrestling with the Lord because we say, "God, you're not judging rightly. I know how, how this situation should be judged, and you're getting it wrong." Friends, let me encourage you. keep wrestling. Because the one with whom you are wrestling with is the one in whom you will find the deepest safety, even if you walk away from that wrestling match with a lifelong limp. Keep wrestling with the Lord. If he is the God of wisdom, does he not truly know your thoughts? This little brief passage in, in uh, four little verses leads us and invites us to understand the person and the character of God. Friends, you may need to spend a little bit less time in the newspaper or watching cable news or on social media or whatever else, and you might need to spend a little bit more time in the scriptures to understand the character of God. That, that, that's not me saying the scripture says, hey, don't do this thing and go, go, go study this. Just saying as a pastor from pastoral experience and, and biblical counsel, consider God. Jesus says essentially the same thing in Matthew chapter six, right? Many of us are familiar with Jesus's words in Matthew chapter six, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you, right? We're familiar with that passage when we feel anxious and then suddenly it just starts to slip away from our our mind, right? Seek first, what? But Jesus in Matthew chapter six, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Bible study tip number two, when you see the word therefore, this is such a, uh, just such a cliche saying, but you should ask, what is it there for? Why is it there? What am I supposed to then consider, right? Usually means you should consider the bunch of words he shared before that. And then when you consider those words in the preceding uh, sections of Scripture, then you consider what comes after the therefore. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus is just pressing buttons. He is speaking to a crowd of people who are in poverty, who have to wonder where their next meal is going to come from. If the harvest is not white and if the fields are not ready, there's not going to be any sort of gleaning the fields. If the fishing nets come back empty and the waters don't have fish you know, swarming all around, the fishermen will not have anything to sell in the marketplace. But Jesus says to these people, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than these birds? Because in Luke chapter 12, the birds that Jesus refers to are garbage-hunting ravens. In, in the corollary passage to Matthew chapter 6, Luke 12, verses 22 to 34, in, in, those passage, in that passage, the birds that, are, that Jesus is talking about, the way in which God provides for them is our scraps, and yet they are provided for. I think many of us would agree from the scriptures and from our own experience that sometimes the Lord does provide all the time, yes, but sometimes he just doesn't provide the way that we were expecting. This isn't exactly what we wanted. I didn't want to go through that season of anxiety, but he answered so many prayers in that season. He, he, he answered prayers I didn't even remember I had actually even prayed. This is not what I was expecting. I was hoping that the table would be overflowing with never-ending meals. And yet, like the ravens, even the scraps were a provision. That's just a metaphor. The Lord was not literally throwing garbage at my plate, just metaphorically speaking, there. But are you not of more value than they? Verse 27 And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Friends, uh, if you're someone who is anxious and fearful, the word that you might want to underline in this brief little passage is little faith. Because Jesus is not speaking to those of no faith. He's not speaking to people who do not trust him. He is speaking to people who have little faith. They're lacking in trust. They're not devoid of it. They're simply lacking in it. Our anxiety is oftentimes a result of lacking faith in God and trusting in his promises because we are overcome and overwhelmed by the momentary troubles and and, and difficulties of the day that is before us. "Oh you of little faith." Oftentimes this verse is read as a rebuke to people, "Oh you of little faith." But Jesus is speaking to people, reminding them that God loves them and He cares for them, and He is going to provide for them even better than they can think to provide for themselves. So it's not, "Oh, you of little faith." It's, "Oh, you of little faith. Will you not believe? Jesus goes on, verse 31, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In conclusion, Jesus says, Therefore, now you all remember what therefore is therefore, right? Right? You got to remember what Jesus just said just a moment ago. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's something really interesting and incredible in this statement. Jesus does not give any sort of promise that you are going to escape your troubles. In fact, he seems to be exposing the fact that you got troubles today. You got to think about the troubles right now. Because tomorrow, you're going to have some more troubles. And then, you're going to have to deal with those troubles tomorrow, tomorrow. But many of us, in the midst of our anxieties and the troubles of the day, we think, you know what? If I just had tomorrow's grace right now, I would overcome my difficulties. But the Lord hasn't promised you tomorrow's grace today. He's promised you tomorrow's grace. Say it with me. Tomorrow. Tomorrow can you rest in that? Because not only has he promised that, look, troubles are going to come tomorrow, he has promised that he is going to be with you, giving you grace, strengthening you for tomorrow's trouble tomorrow. Many of us may be so familiar with this passage that in familiarity, we've kind of lost the poignancy and the potency of Jesus' words here, You know, we read passages like this and various other passages that tell us do not be anxious. Maybe if we don't have time to read, we're listening to a sermon real quick of, you know, some other better preacher who preached a really powerful sermon on on anxiety, and we listen to that, we're encouraged for a moment, and then, ah, man, I just ran to another trouble. And then I quickly, I just forgot what that preacher said. We are overcome with anxiety because there are so many troubles that we face That is not to minimize or to downplay or to even ignore the fact that we are anxious and frail people. Jesus shows us the reality of the world with which we find ourselves in. We are not engaging the world as we wish it would be. We live in a world that is as it is and sufficient for the day is its trouble and tomorrow he will meet us again. But friends, the, the meaning of the word here, when, when Jesus is referring to anxiety, it essentially means to divide, to divide. It's a, it, the, the, the word essentially means a sense of being distracted, right? So it's, it's not simply just a blanket over your face so that you can't see clearly. Your, your, your sense and your ability to understand and to see rightly is split in half. You're divided, Anxiety, the term itself is referring to a sense that creates instability. The ground you're standing on suddenly starts to shake. And you suddenly start to see the cracks in the ground. And you find one foot on one side of the crack and the other foot on the other side of the crack and you start to wonder, oh no, that ice is not gonna be able to hold my weight. There's a sense of instability. But did you see the reasons that the Lord Jesus himself gave to not be anxious? He didn't give just cold reasons, just, hey, your feelings don't matter, don't think about this. He gave genuine reasons to consider. He reasoned with theology. He reasoned with theology. He said, look at the birds and consider your heavenly father. Consider God. Look at what God does to provide for the birds. Some of y'all need to be better bird watchers. I know I do. I love cardinals in my backyard. They're always all over the mulberry tree. But he, again, goes on. He says, hey, consider how unproductive anxiety ultimately is. How many of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? Jesus is exposing the fact that we assume that we are in control of our lives, and as we are in the middle of that assumption, we've just burned time. Time that we're not going to get back. And our life is short. And that time is lost. Consider how unproductive this is. Jesus goes on to say, hey, consider the lilies. Consider God's provision in the midst of the lilies. Maybe some of y'all don't have ponds in your backyard, so you don't have lilies, but you might have a mulberry tree. You know, those mulberries grow back season after season without you even having to do anything. That's God's provision, y'all. God grows the mulberry trees in your backyard. Are you not of more value than that mulberry tree? You are. Friends, highlight the fact that Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. He's not exasperated. He's not tired of you. He's exposing to you your condition and your reality. Your faith is lacking, but he's not going to throw you away. He's not done with you. Jesus says, do not be anxious because you have a heavenly father who knows everything you need when you need it. So the strength and grace and energy that you need for tomorrow's troubles, the Lord knows. And he knows what troubles are coming for you. And he will provide everything you need at the moment you need it and not a moment sooner. Some of our frustrations with the Lord's, uh, what we want to assume is provision, actually is his provision. Some of our frustrations oftentimes is This is not what I need, God. I need this other thing. I need you to remove this burden off my back. And the Lord is yet still providing for you and he is giving everything you need. And I heard one preacher say once, if you knew exactly what God knew about your needs, you probably wouldn't be praying the same way. If you knew exactly what God knew, your prayers would look a lot like what he says we just don't know what we need but we know we are in need when God is all that we have left Jesus concludes again do not be anxious about tomorrow attend to today he's giving you practical counsel he is saying right here this might be the most important aspect of systematic theology you might read all week look focus right now right here eyes right here tomorrow's coming Wait for that, but focus right here. Attend to today, and then with God's help, you'll attend to tomorrow. You're not gonna be alone when you do it, but you gotta focus right here, right now. The biblical counselor, Ed Welch. Uh, David Pallison died um, uh, some time ago. Uh, I believe it was uh, last year. Um, But biblical counselors have changed my life more than... uh, you know, even some of the, the most incredible theologians and pastors who've preached, but Ed Welch is one of these uh, biblical counselors and anything Paulson or Welch has written, I would commend to you. Welch said, faith in Jesus will not replace your fears. Instead, your faith will coexist with your fears and begin to quiet them. You will learn by faith to see your life from Jesus' perspective and to trust that he is our ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 46, verse 1. Friends, some of us assume that if we just believe a little harder, and if we grind our teeth a little more and just hang in there, our fears will be gone. Faith in Jesus will not replace your fears. It will coexist with them and begin to quiet them. I hand out books all the time. And I really hope these books are helpful for you. I do not offer them or hand them out to you know boast in how much I've read. I've not read that much. I don't got time for that. I got little kids at home. But friends, some of us need to slow down a little bit and more methodically and carefully think about the very troubles that are before us. You might be reading an intense uh, Bible reading plan and you're just not keeping up with it and the the crushing weight of guilt is just overwhelming. Friends, let me encourage you and give you a little bit of freedom. Maybe you need to take a little step back. And if you've been weighed down by the, the weight of anxiety, friends, this tiny little booklet of overcoming anxiety by David Powelson, super helpful. This has been super helpful for me and you can see how thin it is. I mean, my glasses lenses are thicker than this. You can read this. You can make your cup of coffee, you can drink your cup of coffee, and then when you make your second cup in the morning, you can pick this up and you can read this and meditate on it and chew on the scriptures on how God's word counsels you. This is available for you. But friends, You might need to just replace your devotional because your devotional has just not been super helpful and it's not been doing anything and you're not really wholeheartedly reading it. Friends, grab this copy of Ed Welch's book, A Small Book for the Anxious Heart, Meditations on Fear, Worry, and Trust. This might be the most helpful book that you read in the midst of your anxiety with your morning cup of coffee and your Bible reading. You might actually end up reading more scripture in this little book than you would by yourself. Parents. Where are y'all? Somebody raise their hand. I see a couple of parents. You might have teens at home or you might have preteens and you have no idea what in the world God is going to do in their lives. You feel anxious, your teens feel anxious, your preteens feel anxious. Friends, Ed Welch's little booklet right here, A Student's Guide to Anxiety, can be super helpful for you. You might need to put some other things down and put some other priorities away and read this with your kids. This is available for you you might be somebody who is overcome with fear and you just want to rip your hair out. You do not know what to do when you're afraid. You read Psalm 56 verses three and four that says, but when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. But you don't feel like you're away from fear. Friends, Ed Welch's little study guide here, when I am afraid, is going to be an immensely helpful resource for you. You might need something more though. Fear has been weighing you down and you cannot get this burden off your back. Friends, you might need to better understand what fear is according to the scriptures and how God counsels you. And Welch's book, Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest may be just what you need to find freedom from anxiety and fear today. These books are available. However, there's a condition. God's grace is unconditional to you, but my giving books to you is gonna be conditional. These are available for you, and I hope that there's not one left, but they are only available for you to grab if you do two things, you promise to read it. Because you don't need any more paperweights on your desk and you don't need some impressive bookshelf at home. Nobody's going to be impressed with that anyway. But these books are available if you promise to read it and if you promise to read it with another member of the church. I'm not trying to up the ante, but I am trying to show you that there is a way to deal with anxiety, fear, and worry And it's through God's word, by the power of God's spirit, in God's word, with God's people. These are available for you if you uh, submit to my two conditions. Our uh, 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 third invitation to understand, understand our hope, verses 12 to 15. The psalmist continues, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and the upright in heart will follow it. Did you catch verse 14 there? Because this is where all of our hope is tied. Like this, this is everything. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Fear and anxiety has a pervasive ability to tell us God's left you. And God's word tells you time after time after time after time again, he will not forsake his people. Ed Welch in a very helpful theological, uh, 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 biblical counseling uh, journal article, he said that the phrase, I am with you is the gift To anxious people. Our worries usually imply that we need someone, the right protector, the right fixer who is close and is for us. And only those who know Jesus actually have that someone. Friends, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know one of his many names, what they are in the Old Testament? He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who has calmed the the, the physical storms of life. Will he then not have the strength to calm the storm of your heart? Genesis 26, 24, the Lord says to you, and he is pleased to keep on reminding you, dear saints, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God goes on to remind you, dear saint, in Isaiah 49 verses 14 through 16, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God is not tired of reminding you. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus again, or the the Lord again, is not tired of reminding you. Philippians chapter four, verses five and six. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Friends, Christians have this good news that the Lord has come nearer to us than we could possibly imagine. There are helpful resources uh, outside of Christianity that can help you mitigate and help uh, your, uh, your, your thoughts and your feelings of anxiety. But Christianity alone gives us good news because in our anxiety, God has come close to us. Many of us in our culture war fighting and, and theological you know, right war fighting, uh, whatever types of arguments we want to engage in with others, we want to assume that we have the right answer, but we so quickly forget that God has come close to those Christians whom we deem our opponents. God has come close to us in Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. One of Jesus' names, Emmanuel, it literally means God with us. God is with us us now he didn't just die and then rise and then leave and go on vacation he is presently with us now the very spirit of christ dwells within you now and the weakest cry to god for help when the spirit of god is in you is true power he is with you and he gives to you all that you need he has given to you the very spirit who cries out in groanings that you cannot even understand when you do not have the words to pray, the Spirit intercedes for you. The good news that God has come to us fully, truly human. Friends, Jesus is not just this divine being from out there that we cannot relate to or understand. Jesus came as God in flesh. Do you know what a true human looks like? It looks like Jesus. Jesus is truly and fully Human. And the flesh that he has taken on to come close to you is the very flesh that he will have for the rest of eternity. That's Philippians chapter 2. He's not giving up that body. And he's not going to give you up either. God has come to us Every other religious system, even uh, secular psychotherapy, enforces a worldview of self-salvation. If you just do this, you'll find wellness and resilience. If you just do this, then you will find freedom and peace with God. If you just do this and do more of this, then God will deem you acceptable and worthy. No, 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 no. Christianity says God has come to you. Jesus lived the very life we could not live. He died the death we should have died. Jesus rose again, and he defeated the grave, and only Jesus will defeat the final anxiety-inducing enemy of death. Our fourth invitation, we're called to understand our help. The psalmist goes on, he says, Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would, have soon, w- would soon have lived in the land of silence. What the psalmist is saying is, if it weren't for God, I would have been dead. I would have been in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Verse 19, maybe the most important verse in this chapter. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death? But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Friends, I want to spend time looking at verse 19. Mike Emlett, uh, one of the counselors at CCEF, who uh, they've They're the ones behind many of these works. Uh, But it's the Christian Counseling Education Foundation. But Mike Emlett so helpfully commented on verse 19. He said, first, notice the realism of the psalmist. When the cares of my heart are many. Not if, when. Life in a fallen world is hard, often excruciatingly painful. Christians don't float above the mess of life stoically relegating disappointments, trials, and tragedies to some back room of our lives? No, we sow in tears. In the world, we face tribulation. We are utterly burdened beyond our strength. We weep with those who weep. But where do we go when the inescapable cares of our lives are multiplying? We look for the consolations of God. What are those consolations? Emlet gives four. This is super helpful. So if you're taking notes, let me encourage you keep tiring out your hand. What are these consolations? Number one, God's power. We are consoled by the fact that not even a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the knowledge and will and purpose of God. The one who created and sustains all things by his powerful word will not drop the ball when it really counts. So, you are safe with God's power. Emlet gives a second consolation God's love. We are consoled by the fact that God's power is directed and animated by His love. Psalm 94 18 highlights God's steadfast love, which holds us up. He is loyal, He is faithful, He's never ending love. It comes to its apex in Christ. God's love is our second consolation. Consolation number three is God's wisdom. We are consoled that God knows what He is doing. Friends, God knows what He is doing. We just got to bank on that. That's a hill worth dying on. Forget all those other hills. Trust God, He knows what He's doing. Uh, Emlet's fourth consolation, God's presence. I am consoled that he is with me. He is with me. Perhaps this is the most critical comfort. I am not alone. Anxiety says you're alone. Fear says you are alone. Uh, Worry says no one is coming to rescue you. I am not alone. Sometimes we acknowledge God's power, love, and wisdom, but we envision him operating at a distance as though he's an absentee father. And yet, one of the most precious realities scripture reveals is that God is with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this good shepherd is with us forever through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And one day, we will see him face to face. God's presence. Now, I'm going way over time. I want to apologize, but we're dealing with God's word. So I'm going to refrain from apologizing. Friends, I'm going to give you one more passage of scripture to consider. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. I'll just read it for you. You can meditate on this afterwards. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes for us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Friends, we are not instructed to ignore our anxiety, minimize it, or even to deny its presence. But when you hear and read a verse, or these two verses in 1 Peter chapter five, what is the imperative in this passage? You might be tempted to think that it's to cast all your anxieties on him. But the actual imperative in the passage is not cast your anxieties. The imperative is to humble yourselves. This is Peter's secret to finding peace in the midst of an anxious world. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves is the only exhortation in this passage. This is what Peter wants us to hear and obey. If we jump into the middle, it makes no sense. We cannot cast our cares on God until we have recognized that God that God is God and we are his servants who through the son of God have been elevated to become his children. The imperative is to humble ourselves and it is through humbling ourselves that we find exaltation. Now, we have covered a ton of material. My hope is that this has been helpful, not just theoretically, but practically. I am anxious for our church to be a church that is able to find peace in the midst of anxiety. But what can we do? Do you have a game plan to deal with the troubles that are inevitably going to be awaiting you today? Do you have a game plan for tomorrow? Well, you're gonna need one tomorrow. But typically, uh, you know, I don't follow professional sports much, but I'm understanding that when professional sports coaches, uh, you know, get out into the field, they don't actually know how the game is going to play out. They may have watched a bunch of game tapes to understand how their opponents are going to play, and they might understand what kind of a playbook the, oppo- the opposing team has, but they don't actually know how the game is going to play right now. So David Pallison again, gives us a really helpful game plan to deal with anxiety, Proverbs twenty five twenty eight gives us a very helpful description of what a person with anxiety looks like. This is what the proverb says. A man who has no control over his spirit is like a city broken into and without walls. How do you get a grip when barbarians are rioting in the streets of your mind? Terrorist attackers, gang of criminals, suicide bombers, cities invaded, fires everywhere, a lion in the streets, chaos. Your mind loses its grip. Fear and anxiety have taken over. What do you do? Powelson gives us six helpful uh, steps in an action plan. Here's what you can do. First, name the pressures. These will be up on the screen for you. Hopefully this will be helpful for you if you jot it down in your loop throughout the week. But Powelson's first step for us that personally I have found to be incredibly helpful in the course of my own experience with anxiety and, and worry, first, name the pressures. We all worry about something. So what things tend to hook you? What do you tend to worry about? When you try to justify your anxiety, what are those good reasons that you give for your anxiety? The very act of naming them is often very helpful. You might be feeling like you're juggling a 1,000 plates, but then you start to name the anxieties and the cares of your heart and you realize it's not actually a 1,000 plates, it's six plates. And two of those six plates are what I have to deal with right now. So the very act of naming your pressures helps you to better see with clarity. Anxieties feel endless and infinite, but they are actually finite and specific. Second, identify how you express anxiety. We don't all express anxiety in the same way. So how does anxiety show up in your life? For some, it's a sense of panic in our chest, feels like our throat's kind of closing, might feel like a tension headache is coming. Many of us might uh, uh, find cheap remedies that sin manufacturers like gobbling up an entire gallon of ice cream because we want to self-medicate, or maybe our self-medication looks like uh, one too many stiff drinks. We think that we're going to find help at the bottom of the carton or the bottom of the bottle. But if you can spot the signs and identify how you are expressing anxiety, It acts like a red light on the dashboard and says, Whoa, there's an alert. I got to pay attention to this. Number three, ask yourself, Why am I anxious? This is a very important thing. Ask yourself, Why am I anxious? Worry always has its inner logic. When you think about the things that make you anxious, what inevitably follows is a bunch of what you assume is logical justifications for your reason to worry. So, ask yourself, why am I anxious? Identify what is hijacking your thoughts. What do I want? What do I need? What do I crave, expect, demand, or lust after? And since we fear losing the things that we crave getting, what do I fear either losing or never getting? Ask yourself, why am I anxious? Number four, what better reason does Jesus give you not to worry? We saw several important reasons he gave in Matthew chapter 6, but maybe there's too many for you to remember. So pick one. Pick one promise, one reason that Jesus has given for you to trust His word that you do not have to be anxious and worry. Grab one promise and work with it. Don't assume that you're done working with it. Work with it until the promise has molded you and massaged you into a person who can cast your anxieties to God. Number five, go to your Father. Your father invites you to pray. Your father invites you to come. He is not annoyed with you when you are tugging on his pant leg and say, dad, 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 will you help me? God does not grow tired or weary of you. So go to him, talk to him. It's not as though your father does not care about the things you worry about, your friends, your health, your money, your children, so forth. Your father knows what you need. You can go to him with the things that concern you. You really can. So go to your Father. The last step, finally, give. Give. Anxiety inevitably and inherently makes us inward, it makes us self centered. It takes pride to be anxious because we assume we are the center of the universe, we assume that we are the center of our very troubles. That's not to say that our troubles are not important, but you can still, in the midst of your anxiety, entrust yourself to God and do and say something that is constructive. You can care for someone else. You can, in the midst of your anxiety, give to meet human need. Jesus is a perfect example of that in the garden. Overwhelmed to the point of blood dripping from his arms, he is giving himself to meet human need. But he is not just our example. He is our savior. We can look to this savior and give. In the darkest hole, when the world is most confused, when the barbarians are in the streets and life is the toughest, there is always the right thing to do. Be about the business of today. Leave tomorrow's uncertainties to your father. Give. Friends, I'm gonna conclude with this. The main idea that we considered from Psalm 94 and these various other passages where Jesus speaks to to us in our anxiety is the fact that the Lord is near to you so you can courageously attend to today and confidently leave tomorrow to him. Why? Why can you do this? Why are you enabled to be able to attend to the matters of today and trust that God is going to give you the grace that you need tomorrow to attend to the troubles of tomorrow? because he has promised to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is good news for anxious hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, humbling ourselves and trusting that you care for us, and that in the midst of our anxieties, we can find in you safety and peace And we can find in you refuge from our troubles. We can find in you strong walls that the barbarians and the thugs cannot break through. Father, would you help us now to look to you in faith and trust you? Would you help strengthen our faith and help strengthen our trust in you? Would you help us to see that you've not left us in the midst of the barbarian attacks? Father, would you help us to look to Christ, the Prince of Peace, who has promised that he will build back everything sin has broken. And would you help us to find in him freedom from our fear, our worries, our anxieties, and all that which which would threaten our peace in him. Help us to look to Jesus, the one who will never abandon us, the one who will never leave us, the one who has promised he will never forsake us and will be with us even to the end. Father, help us to trust Christ even in the midst of our anxiousness. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.